Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I was always the type of guy that enjoyed a good mystery. Mysteries like UFO sightings or those TV shows about paranormal investigators that stay a night in a haunted house, they always sparked my imagination as a child. Some of those shows kept me awake at night, but that was all part of the fun. I never bought too much into crazy theories, but I do pay attention to anything that really makes you question what reality is. One documentary in particular set my mind racing. It was one of those history channel shows that explore various mysteries over the course of the hour. This episode talked about the Bohemian Grove, and for those of you who don't know, the Bohemian Grove is a camping ground in the Redwood Forest of California that hosts a two-week retreat in the middle of July for the world's most powerful men. It is here that they may form a sort of think tank. This has led some to believe that the two-week getaway is actually a meeting for the new world order. Now, I don't particularly subscribe to the whole NWO theory. In fact, it's one of my least favorite conspiracy theories. However, Bohemian Grove was only a few hours drive from my home in Red Bluff, so I somehow resolved that a trip down to the Redwoods would be some good fun. I figured June was almost over, so if I head down in a few weeks, I might even be lucky enough to see some VIPs. I called up some buddies of mine and asked if they would be down to do a little backpacking, and if they knew what the grove was. They told me that they had heard of it, and a change of scenery would be good. So over the next couple of weeks, we threw together some equipment and gear for the trip, and we headed on down. My friends, Tyler and Joe, read just far into the Bohemian Grove as I had, so we were on the same page as far as what to expect when we got there. And as such, we decided the best time to get into the grove was a little after dark, 
so as to avoid any sort of security that undoubtedly would be present. Now, according to our map, the best way into the grove was to follow Smith Creek east from Russian River, and then fork due south. The trip itself would take almost a full day of just trucking through the hike, but we wanted to take our time and enjoy being away from Red Bluff. So instead, we'd go halfway and camp a night. That way, we could hike the rest of the day and roll into the grove after sunset. After a few hours, some restroom stops and lunch, we'd arrived at Mont Rio, where we'd found a pretty isolated spot to park the car. As we unloaded our gear, we took in the cool, moist air that the shade of the redwoods provided for us. It was a sunny day and the clouds were sparse. The birds were chirping and singing high in the trees, and the day began as the most peaceful display of nature I'd ever known. We'd heard the dancing waters of Russian River, locked down the car, and we headed towards our starting point. It was then, amongst the tallest living things in the world, that I knew this place went beyond a simple meeting place for the elite. It was even beyond a force of hidden agendas and conspiracy. This place was mystical. The very air tasted purified like spring water, and it smelled of rich soil. Perhaps it was the age of the forest that made it that way, like an aged man that settled in for his twilight years. Our first day went great. The weather had been perfect all day. Even navigating our rather non-existent trail proved a fun challenge, and once the sun started sinking, we set up camp and ate some of the rations we had packed. Since we were in no hurry to burn the forest down, we didn't even bother with a fire. It was only an hour or two after nightfall that we had all settled into our tents. The forest nocturnal denizens were not as peaceful as their daytime counterparts. I was awoken by my tent rattling and bouncing around. I heard the flutter of wings and the panicked squeaks of some small creature that failed to take refuge under my tent. I figured I'd have to take a piss, so I might as well see what the commotion was. I emerged from the tent with my headlamp and I saw nothing, initially and so I walked a good 20 feet from the campsite and began to relieve myself when I looked up to see a pair of intensely glowing yellow eyes. I jumped in fright, as whatever it was had caught me at an inconvenient moment. My eyes adjusted to reveal that it was a good-sized owl perched on a boulder. As I finished emptying myself while still in eye-lock with this creature, it did something I had not expected. The owl flew down from the boulder and onto the ground directly in front of me. There was something menacing, even insidious in its gaze, and not once did I break eye contact. That is, until it let out a chilling screech I'd only ever heard from a barn owl, and it flew off into the night. The screech seemed to trigger the rest of the forest into action. Mice scurried along the ground. A family of deer hightailed it to the north. 
I could hear a large pack of coyotes baying in the distance as if on the hunt, and needless to say I hurried back to my tent and did not sleep very well. I could still feel that owl watching us from somewhere above. The forest had calmed down after about ten minutes, but I had not. It was just that look, the look of hatred I'd never seen in an animal before. There was just something so unanimal about it, nearing a semblance of expression. The look of a man drunk with hate, a killer through the eyes of the victim. It was something truly, purely dark. Right when I had began to doze off, I heard something that guaranteed I wasn't going to sleep that night. It began soft, almost in the realm of hallucination. The sobbing of a child. It grew louder. Then it took on the form of a baby's pained screams. And I wasn't the only one that heard suspicious noises this time. Hey, Taylor. It was Joe speaking in half a whisper. Yeah, I hear it, Taylor replied with a shaky voice. Man, what the fuck is that? I don't know, man, but it's freaking me the hell out. Why does it sound like a baby crying? I chimed in, equally as frightened. Sounds like it's moving, Joe said a bit louder, and indeed the sound was getting louder. Alright, how does a baby end up miles away from any road by itself? Taylor asked, as if to dismiss it as a dream. His question was something we had all secretly known and held from our minds in denial. A denial that I'd break into two words. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. It doesn't. I said. The veil of panic set in as the wailing reached its climax. The deafening sound came from all angles at once. I clasped my hands over my ears, but still the cries burrowed through. I began to feel a bit dizzy. The very ground seemed to spin at the sound of the child's pain and despair. My head was pounding and my vision began to blur. Oh, I think I'm going to puke, 
I heard from one of the other tents. I could no longer recognize their voices over all the commotion. The cries slowly began to taper off. They eventually faded back into a plausible hallucination and on into silence. I emerged from my tent to find Joe kneeling over a puddle of vomit and coughing out the last drops. Taylor was already out as well, disoriented by the screams. I checked my watch to see if it was even worth trying to salvage a few hours of sleep. 3.23 a.m. It was probably enough time to try. What's going on out here, man? Taylor asked as an open question. You know, this is a pretty sick joke if that's what you brought us out here for. Joe coughed at me, followed by a gaseous burp and a slight recovery. You think I wanted to do that myself too? I retorted. That wasn't any of us, Taylor began. None of us brought anything that could make noise like that. Much less would any of us want to listen to that ourselves. Anyway, our best idea would be try to go back to sleep and talk about it in the daylight where our minds won't play so many tricks on us. We all agreed. Taylor had, in fact, always been the wisest and most level-headed of the three of us. But this truth was something we couldn't consciously believe. Our minds couldn't grasp it, like it had heard some strain of hideously vulgar language. Before I retired back to my tent, I chanced to look up at the forest ceiling. I saw my headlamp's beam climb the giant's trunk and into the sky, and it was here that I saw the clear night, the moon's crescent glow among the stars, along with a pair of intense yellow eyes, a skulking stalker waiting and watching. Now I know I dreamed that night, and for the life of me I can't remember what it was. I know I woke up terrified instantly remembering and reliving the past night. I do remember that it was one of those nightmares you can't willingly wake up from. It was the kind that even if your thoughts reject everything else, you still can't revive from sleep. A prison inside the only place that knows exactly what you fear. I rolled out of my tent at around 8 o'clock. It was an extremely foggy morning and I knew this particular ecosystem was renowned for fog, but this was far beyond my imagining. The forest itself was calm, thankfully, but in a way that was eerily so. There were no birds singing in the early morning, no deer nor elk roamed the woods. In fact, it was totally still and totally silent. But I took this as a pleasant change of pace compared to the prior hellish night. Joe was the second to wake up and open his tent. He had the same restless look in his eyes that I imagine I also had in mine. He got a couple of packs of trail mix out of his pack and threw one my way. My failed attempt to catch the snack was trailed by our first talk of the day. Listen, I don't want to talk about anything until we start walking, Joe stated as a matter of fact. I second that notion, I replied looking around the forest suspiciously. And I third, 
said a voice in Taylor's tent. It had startled Joe and I before we figured out Taylor had awoken and begun packing. It didn't take long to take down the campsite. Breaking down tents and stuffing sleeping bags was something we'd done many times before, but none of us spoke a word while we did it. It was an appropriate reflection of the forest's own silence. I left out the map and the compass to finish orienting to the grove. The three of us put on our packs, and without much more than a glance at each other, we continued south. Figuring we had come all this way already, we trudged headlong into the unknown we had caught a brief glimpse of a few hours earlier. The sun was high in the sky as the fog cleared and evaporated. It was soothing to hear birds chirping once again, and to smell the same purity in the air as the day before. We still had several miles left until the grove, so we might as well enjoy it. Well, at least it turned out to be an alright day. Taylor was the first to speak. Yeah, but what about last night? Joe asked with a slightly worried voice. What about it? I asked rhetorically, begging to not relive it in memory. That cry, dude? Joe began. I've never been that scared in my life. I mean, how did it even get out here? Like you said, it couldn't have made it out here on its own. Someone had to carry it or something. Whatever it was, it didn't seem to be in a huge hurry to shut the hell up. Furthermore, that cry? Hell, that cry got loud, like it walked through our camp. Joe's perceived paranoia was scratching at the walls of questions we all had, but knew we couldn't bear the answer to. You know, I saw something when I got out of my tent last night. Taylor had chimed in now, and he had captured our full attention. You know, before the cries completely vanished, I saw two lights fading into the woods. They were bouncing as if carried by someone walking very slowly. They were as small as candles and probably burned just as bright. I didn't want to say anything then to alarm you guys any further. Which way were they going? I asked and immediately regretted doing so. Taylor paused for a moment and I could see him working it out in his head. His eyes shot down to his feet to watch his step and then back up to the woods. You know, I, uh, I don't know, he stated after some hesitation. But I knew. I knew he had remembered which way his tent was facing. I knew he had remembered which way he was looking relative to his tent. It was the type of thing he had typically taken note of. I knew he knew exactly which way they had gone, and I knew we must be following them. You know, aside from all this crazy talk, Joe said to try to shrug off the conversation, what are we going to do tonight when we actually get to Bohemian Grove? Well, I had thought this part out. We all have binoculars, right? They nodded in agreement. Well, I was thinking we'd post up on a nearby clearing. Needs to be somewhere where we won't have our view limited by the trees and a place high enough to have a good view of whatever's going on. 
I looked at the satellite pictures of the areas around the grove, and our path should lead us somewhere that might work for us. I don't know what we'll see, but we ought to at least see some VIPs in some of the facilities. I just hope this whole trip wasn't for a bad view of a place we know nothing about, Joe said begrudgingly. We took great comfort in the remaining daylight, even partially recovered from the terror of the night. And as twilight set in and we came upon our clearing, the daylight had already become sorely missed. We set our packs down in front of us and used them to prop up our chests, making the extended use of binoculars a bit more comfortable. I peered through the scopes to see only distant redwoods still visible in the fading twilight, and as I panned around, I began seeing cabins and tents. They were small, almost miserly shacks, not a place I'd expect to see visiting dignitaries. I lowered my binoculars to see what my cohorts were looking at. Some high for the rich and wealthy, said Taylor, who had apparently seen and thought the same as I had. What's that? Joe lowered his binoculars and pointed toward a small body of water. I raised mine back up in the direction of the water. It almost looked like an amphitheater. A small pond giving rise to stone steps filled my sight, and I followed the stairs up to what appeared to be a two-tiered stone stage, separated by another set of steps arranged in a semicircle. At the center of the semicircle was what appeared to be a stone fire pit of some sort, with a strangely shaped monolith behind it, towering over the amphitheater. As I stared at the strange sight, I had ascertained what the monolith was. It was a statue of a large winged creature, an owl to be certain. My mind raced back to the vicious owl at the campsite. I tried to dismiss it by thinking it was just a bizarre coincidence, but the whole thing made me feel uneasy. Looks like kind of a theater, doesn't it? said Taylor. That's probably going to be what we want to watch tonight. We all agreed and used the day's last light to set up our tents. Thankfully, our tents blended well with the environment. This would help us avoid being discovered by the security that was surely present with such high-profile individuals about. No lights were to be used all night, and we rarely spoke above a whisper. Our dinners consisted of beef jerky and peanuts, a true backpacker's delicacy. It seemed that the purple glow of twilight gave way to utter darkness in mere minutes, and the nightly silence followed. The moon hung in the sky as a resolute watcher of the night, as the stars joined in, as the stars joined in with us as secret audiences of Bohemian Grove. The three of us posted back on our packs, with our binoculars glued to our faces. The grove was dimly lit by candles and lanterns posted along the roads. And this was our first sign of actual life down there and we could see vague forms and figures migrating towards the amphitheater. Taylor had chosen the right spot to watch. It was hard to tell what these figures were wearing in the dim. 
The only thought that came to my mind was the robes worn by a choir, except for these robes were mostly black, broken up by some blues, grays, dark greens, and only two reds from what I could tell. Their faces were all shielded by hoods, and the vast majority of black robes gathered on the north side of the small pond, closest to us, and a faint hum of conversation permeated the crowd of about fifty. All colored robes took places on the stone stage and carried candles. I chanced to look over at Tyler to see what he may be thinking, and all I could see was a lump forming in his throat. I peered back down the scopes. One of the blue robes stood center stage. He held what appeared to be an unlit torch. The buzz of talk among the audience silenced, and at first it was difficult to discern what the figure was saying. Eventually my ears had tuned in to the man's baritone voice. On this, the first night of the year's encampment, we welcome all into our domain of shared wisdom and brotherhood. I will be the old guard residing over tonight's communion, and indeed, Bohemian Grove itself. Let us begin with a word of prayer to Moloch. The man lowered the torch and raised his right hand toward the owl monolith. The crowd and the bystanders on stage mimicked the action. Greatest Moloch, we humble servants of your way ask for close guidance these next few weeks to carry us through the rest of the year before we convene here once again to bask in your sight and to take shelter in your mighty wings. We seek the wisdom and knowledge to best lead our people into your divine talents so that they may be carried on the winds of enlightenment. The crowd followed by speaking a verse and form of a chant. I couldn't distinguish but a single word from it, but it was no longer than a short sentence beginning with the word wisdom and fading into indistinguishable babble. Owls had been often associated with knowledge and wisdom in many cultures, so it made sense to ask this Moloch for such a thing. The blue-robed man continued, it is not out of charity that we ask these things. We have prepared for you a seed that would surely grow as mighty as these trees you have made for our dwelling in. Please watch, dear Moloch, as we prepare for you our offering. He lowered his hand back to his side and lifted the torch back up. The crowds lowered their hands as four gray robes flanked the blue with candles pointed forward. They raised their small fires to ignite the torch into a blaze of its own, and once lit, the four returned the candles to chest level and retreated to their spots. The lighting of the torch symbolizes the four songbirds that fly the void. The blue robe continued, singing their unheard lullaby to Kamzatz. Moloch is a songbird of knowledge. As such, he is tasked with remembering the song should the other three forget or the song end. The man turned and walked toward the stone fire pit and lit the kindling inside. The fire began small and smoky, 
but eventually was able to outshine all other lights when coupled with the reflection made by the pond. I, nearly blinded by the inferno, took my eyes out of their respective lenses and looked to my two friends. So this is what they do when we don't see them on TV? whispered Joe mockingly. He and Taylor were still peering through their binoculars, so I raised mine back up to my head. The blue-robed man spoke again. This ceremony is called the cremation of care, and it is our longest-held tradition. For the rest of this ritual, he spoke exclusively in an undefined language. It sounded like it may have been close to Hebrew, but I was no linguist. He spoke quickly in his almost haunting baritone voice. In every few sentences, he would stop to allow the crowd to respond with the chant in the same twisted language. You know, I don't feel too good about this, whispered Tyler. Yeah, I spoke in hushed, shaky tones. Everything about this feels wrong. Wait, what are the two red guys doing? The two red-robed figures standing on either side of the owl turned and walked slowly, as if calculating every step behind the monolith. Moments later, they returned carrying either side of a dresser drawer-sized wicker basket. Its contents were obscured by our ankle. The two continued their snail-paced walk to the front of the fire pit. They set the basket down and returned to their posts. The blue robe continued his obscured sermon and turned to point at the two red robes. His rant had carried on, but this was not what held our attention. The two figures in red raised their hands to the sides of their hoods, and they slowly and simultaneously lowered them to reveal a hideous sight. Two pale, bald heads emerged from the hoods, each lacking eyebrows and facial hair as well. Perhaps the strangest of things were their eyes, though, each with heavy cataracts that gave the irises a ghostly appearance that was enhanced by slight jaundice. These men have been stricken blind. You know, I think, um, we need to leave, said Tyler, slightly above a whisper, but Joe and I were nearly entranced. We could be witnesses to something the world did not know of. It was this ability to wield forbidden knowledge that held our attention stronger than the sheer terror. Hey, guys. Tyler was speaking at conversation volume now. You don't get it, guys. We need to leave. Now. Before we see something that'll drive us insane. Tyler. Joe began speaking as loud as Tyler now. You're freaking out about nothing. You know, these guys seem harmless. Well, then you could keep your head up your ass, but I refuse to sit here and watch any longer. Well, the both of you just calm down, I whispered loudly. They stopped their bickering. I knew Tyler may have figured something out, but I could not stop watching what was unfolding below. Nobody's making you stay. If you don't want to watch, then go in your fucking tent. Tyler stared at me for a second with a look of shock in his eyes before walking back to his tent. I couldn't be bothered by his cautionary advice. 
What I was seeing took greater precedence. As I once again peered through my binoculars, I could see the blue robe walk over to the basket at the foot of the fire pit. He was still speaking in tongues as he pulled a bread loaf-sized clump of rags out of it, but the rags started to unfurl. He cradled the remainder in his left arm. With his right hand, he reached into the clump and raised, as though unsheathing a sword, an infant child and held it high in the air by its leg. He paraded the now wailing child around the stage like brandishing a trophy. Chills shot through my whole body, bumps formed on my arms, and my heart was a racing engine. Whatever was about to happen could only be a sinister act, an act of dark obsession and evil motives. My stomach churned as the same ear-piercing cry of the baby in the forest shot out from the grove. Had this been the same baby? Had the two figures in red robes carried it right through our camp, blind to their surroundings? And what about that damned owl? We were in the midst of no mere sermon, but of an unholy communion, a sacrificial rite. I froze, unblinking, unable to react to what I was seeing, unable to run. Tyler had been right, yet again and I could hear him beginning to cry in his tent, not capable of leaving the friends that defied him, and a cold sweat began rolling down my forehead. The man in the blue robe put his left hand on the child's forehead and recited, loudly and clearly, words from some arcane ritual written in the mutilated Jewish tongue. He removed his left hand and walked toward the fire. He brought the baby over the blaze and he released it. The child was devoured by the charring depths of the sacrificial furnace. Some monstrous, sickening deed had been done in the name of this malign god. The cries grew in intensity, reaching a new level of agony and suffering, and the blaze shot up, reaching the height of the monolith before being completely extinguished in an instant and a silence hung in the air that suggested that the poor child now knew asleep it was far too young to meet. My eyes adjusted to the dark after moments. Candles and lanterns were now the primary light. The forest seemed to shiver after what it had seen. The moon abandoned its nightly watch, and the stars turned their backs. The seed is fed to the fire. As the ancient rite goes, said the blue-robed man, bowing to the owl statue. Hear us and reply, Lord Moloch. Share the wisdom of ages. And I could hear what sounded like distant thunder rolling through the forest. Once it passed overhead, it was followed by a cold wind. If my bones had not already been chilled, the wind would have surely done it. My eyes suddenly started burning fiercely, and with no explanation as to what had caused it, I glanced toward Joe. He had gone pale and looked sickly. He was crying blood. Thinking I might have been doing the same, I rubbed my eyes and looked at my hands. There were a dark shade of crimson. We gotta get the hell out of here, said Joe on the verge of vomiting. Tell Tyler he was right. I'll start breaking down the tents. 
We packed the camp up in mere seconds, though at the time it felt like a grim eternity. The wind picked up as we left our precipice, and the sky was now shrouded in cloud, and it was not long before the rain was falling. Whatever monster the grove had been calling to had definitely answered. With our headlamps on and our hearts in a panic, we set off in a dead run through the forest. The wind was causing the trees to sway and flex. It cut in between them, making a ghastly moaning noise. Tyler had led the way with Joe and I trailing close behind. Lightning flashed, giving us a brief, lighted glimpse of the forest. The thunder clapped in the distance and began to grow louder. It felt like that thunder was chasing us. As it rolled overhead, our headlamps began to flicker. And the flickering was mild at first, dimming and occasionally blinking. This progressed until the lamp was nothing more than a paperweight with a head strap. Once my light went out, I ripped it off my head and I tossed it aside. The run was miserable. Every breath filled my lungs with freezing air. And I couldn't tell if my eyes burned because of the rain or the blood that still trailed from them. I could feel the weight of my pack dig into the muddy ground with every step, and with a flash of lightning, I could see something falling onto Taylor. The impact took him straight to the ground, and immediately following, Joe tripped over him, with me nearly going over as well. I saw Joe roll over in the dirt and recovered to his feet. Taylor fell on his side and was shielding his face with his arm. Another flash of lightning revealed what Taylor was shielding his face from. I knew what it was in that very instant by the telltale sign of a pair of burning yellow eyes. That owl tore at Taylor's flesh with its talons. It nabbed at his eyes with its beak. And though he flailed around in a desperate act to escape, the nocturnal bird did not let up its onslaught. Taylor screamed in terror and agony. I dropped my pack and delivered a swift kick to the owl's chest. It landed about three feet away on its side, and I waited a moment to see if the owl would get back up. It sat lifeless on the ground for a moment before recovering to its feet. Its sulfurous gaze cut through to my very soul and ailed my already wary body. With a hideous shriek and a flutter of wings... The owl flew off into the wicked night. Taylor had been knocked unconscious. He had deep lacerations all over his arms, prompting heavy blood flow. His eyes were swollen shut, deep purple bruises covering his face, and aside from still breathing, he looked dead. Joe and I broke out our first aid kits and we went to work. We applied disinfectant and heavy gauze to his carved up forearms and hands and we tied tourniquets to his upper arms to slow the blood loss. We need to get him to the hospital, said Joe, still a bit rattled by the assault. I nodded. We strapped Taylor's pack to his chest to keep his weight forward and his possibly concussed head resting on the bag's frame. Together, Joe and I scooped him up and slung each of Taylor's bloody arms around our necks and began dragging him out of the accursed forest. 
No matter how our bodies had already been battered, we now had a life in our hands. The life of our friend. Adrenaline took hold and we summoned the strength to trudge on with our northerly route. Minutes of walking passed, followed by what seemed like several hours. The sky began to brighten as the rain let up. As if to signal some small salvation, we heard the running waters of Smith Creek. Our wary bodies saw the light at the end of the tunnel and began to shut down. Our legs quaked with the fatigue delivered by every step, and all we needed to do now was follow the creek west and to get to that damn car. The familiar sounds of the morning birds filled the air. They sounded so joyous, so blissful, so unaware of the atrocity that had just occurred. The sin that dejected nature and broke the order. The very substance that defines consciousness and sanity. Or perhaps these creatures lived in an ignorant awareness to the annual unholy sacrament in the heart of the forest. An odd sort of pact with this Moloch, for animals too fall prey to their own curiosity. Curiosity is, after all, what led us to the strange part of the world. It was out of curiosity that we witnessed that foul enterprise at the grove, and by curiosity's cruel hand, we were now dragging our dear, nearly dead friend out of such a cursed land, a wicked garden. It was as if we were all just marionettes, with our innermost questionings stringing us along, being manipulated by a prime mover, a blight that rests within all our hearts and minds, uncurable and unstopping. It was around seven o'clock in the morning that we cleared the forest and loaded our gear back into the car. Taylor was laying across the back seat with Joe keeping him from rolling around, and once all was secured, I began driving down to a nearby hospital. What are we going to say to the doctors? Joe asked. The truth. He was attacked by a wild animal, Joe. Wild, huh? I saw how it paused to stare you down after you kicked it, which, by the way, probably should have killed the damn thing. The bastard had a mind of its own. I know, man, I said nervously. I'm trying to forget all about that. Forget? Well, I hate to say it, but I don't think that's happening. This is something we're going to have to carry with us to our grave. Well, Joe, if you'll excuse me, I'm trying to make sure our friend doesn't get there too long before we do. I was tired, impatient, and angry. But most of all, still scared shitless of even thinking about anything. I'm sorry, dude. Just just keep driving. Come on, let's get there. I was relieved to have some silence for a bit to concentrate on the road. Driving always eased my troubled mind. But then Joe broke the silence yet again. You know? Know what? I said with a sigh. We could help Tyler in another way. Oh yeah? How's that? Well, I mean, doesn't knowing what we know feel like a burden to you? Yeah, I guess. And we wouldn't want to burden a friend, would we? What are you getting at, Joe? Well, I'm saying we could end his suffering before it starts, you know? Save Tyler from a lifetime of fear and paranoia. 
Have you lost your fucking mind? I asked demandingly. I'd pieced together what he was playing at. No, come on, man. You know, for all we know, he's in a coma he'll never wake up from. Would you torture a friend like that? Make him relive the past nights in his mind over and over again in an endless nightmare? No, I won't make a judgment call on another man's life. I won't play God, Joe. And if you so much as look at him funny, you'll find yourself walking your fucking ass back to Red Bluff. He paused for a moment and whispered, It'd be easy, you know? Just, uh, just one twist that would end the poor bastard's life. I immediately slammed on the brakes and pulled the car over. As I turned to the back seat, I saw Joe's face. He was weeping gravely. The man had lost his mind like Tyler said he would. What, man? Joe sniffled. I mean, can't you see that it's going to be the end of all of us anyway? We'll never get away from it. And no matter how long or Christ, how far we run, it's going to find us. Look around, Joe. I said calmly. What is coming after us? Right now, not a thing, but days, months, maybe years he'll find us. He'll be the end of us. He'll hunt us down in our thoughts, in our nightmares. He may come knocking at night when all evil roams free. He may even find you in broad daylight when you once again find safety in your daily routines, but... You mark my words, he's coming for us. I mean, can't you hear him? I could hear whispering in my head. Yeah, it's telling me just to end it all. He says you'll hear him too. You'll look into his eyes again. His face had gone pale. Tears soaked his face as more welled up in his eyes, and his hand shook uncontrollably, like he was being electrocuted. He had either abandoned his sanity or it was lost within him, but what he said terrified me. What he said shook me to my core. He was right. This wasn't something that we could outlive. Look man, you're not yourself right now. We're on our way to the hospital, bottom line. Just don't touch him and don't say another word. We're going to be there in like 15 minutes. I turned back around and put the car in drive. Daylight was no sanctuary anymore. Upon reaching the hospital, Taylor was rushed into the emergency room. Joe and I sat in the waiting room for an eternity. He did nothing but shiver and whisper to himself the entire time. Growing tired of it, I told Joe I was going to the bathroom. Instead of going though, I spoke to the lady at the front desk and explained Joe's ruptured sanity as post-traumatic stress. Within moments of a phone call to the psych ward, Joe was confronted by two burly male nurses and escorted away. And that was the last time I saw my friend Joe. In days to come, his seemingly sudden mental collapse would earn him titles such as schizophrenic, epileptic, and amnesiac, among others. I kept tabs on him, but I never visited. After they took Joe away, I sat alone in the waiting room, and for two days I'd attempt to read books or magazines, but my worries would take me away from whatever I was reading. I'd sleep in the chairs, 
only to be awoken from a nightmare by the lady at the desk offering me a cup of pudding or something. I never felt well enough to eat, but I always muscled down what she gave me. On that third day, a nurse came out and escorted me to Taylor's hospital room. His door was closed, but a television monitor outside showed him fast asleep. We had to drain the blood out of his eyes, the nurse began. After that, it was just a matter of getting stitches to all those gashes. 183, to be precise. No concussion, no comatose, he's just sleeping now. Do you want to go inside and see him? Just as she asked this, he began to stir in the monitor. He looked up to the camera, and I did not want to see him anymore. No thanks, I think I'll just let him get his sleep and I'll contact his family for his insurance. I spoke these words very briefly. The nurse looked confused as I turned and left the hospital to drive back to Red Bluff. Taylor looked great. His color had come back and aside from the light bruising around his eyes and a map of stitching on each arm, he appeared ready to be released. There was just one thing that bothered me though. One thing that sent my blood cold. Staring through me from that monitor were a set of abhorrent yellow eyes.